It is 14th of March 1941. A little boat floats in the Clyde, as a cloud of Nazi Luftwaffe, drone overhead like locusts. A fleet of yachts and pleasure craft have been converted, outfitted with anti-aircraft guns to form the Clyde Boat Patrol. A flotilla, designed to keep an eye out for U-boat periscopes, floating mines, and firewatch over the docks and factories up and down the river. Most of the time, though, it's pretty mundane, as Jimmy McEachran remembers. Our job was indeed to river patrol, spotting for mines after a raid, chasing away anglers among the low tide sandbanks, as often we'd see a cigarette being lit, bearing in mind the Clyde in wartime darkness, a light could be spotted miles away. There's no need for a fire watch at Clyde Bank tonight. You can't miss it. The whole town is burning as the noise from the Luftwaffe bombers dissipates in the distance. They've come to the outer reaches of their range to show Scotland that it isn't safe. They've come to flatten those shipyards and munitions factories. They've come to demoralise. And they've come to kill. Over two nights, the Nazis' air forces dropped hundreds of tons of bombs and over 1,000 incendiary devices. Of 12,000 houses that stood in the town, only eight remain undamaged. This is a result of the tight mix of housing and heavy industry. The total spread of all the housing in the town was only about a mile and a half. And in the two nights of the Clydebank Blitz, the Nazis levelled the town and started a fire at the nearby oil storage plant that would rage for four weeks. The men of the Clyde Boat Patrol just had to sit there, impotently firing their short-range anti-aircraft guns into the sky as the Nazis inflicted staggering amounts of damage and killed their friends, killed their families, took 528 people away. This is Scotland. A podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. This episode is a few little stories about one building in Glasgow. And the first has its origins that night as Clyde Bank burned. In the centre of Glasgow in 1941, there are three major railway stations within a ten minute walk of each other. Queen Street, sits just off George Square, serving the Highlands and connections to Edinburgh. Central Station connects Glasgow with stations in the south of Scotland and England. Both of them are still there today. But in St Enoch Square, where the huge glass pyramid of the shopping centre stands now, was St Enoch's very own mainline railway station, which served the southwest of Scotland. It rose up on a platform, with shops and merchants in the arches underneath. The adjoining hotel was the biggest in Glasgow when it first opened, with 200 rooms, and it was the first to be illuminated by electric light. St Enoch Square in the early years of the 20th century was a sight to behold, with a huge church, the little sandstone headquarters of the subway in front of it, and this incredible station and hotel, dwarfing the hustle and bustle of city life below it. But it is 1942 now, and the bustle of the city is cowed somewhat by the continuing war and the fear of Luftwaffe air raids. In the St Enoch Hotel, the Royal Navy have moved in and created a shore installation called HMS Sparshit, 
which is responsible for the Clyde Boat Patrol. But it is in the confines of Room 504 that Lieutenant Commander Edward Sager is carrying out the other role of Sparshit. The room is converted into an office and becomes his de facto home during the war. It has a safe, a little desk, a chair, a camp bed, pretty uncomfortable considering it had literally been a hotel up until that point, and a scrambler telephone with a direct line to the Admiralty. Room 504 is the Clyde intelligence system, and Edward Sager loves to get out onto the street, into the pubs, down to the docks, and listen. He'll listen to anything. Rumours. Hearsay. Snippets of rumours. Rumours about rumours. Tales both tall and true. The diligent lieutenant commander takes them all back to room 504 and writes them up. He speaks seven languages, so listening to everyone and anyone isn't a problem. He's creating a network of sailors and businessmen down by the waterfront. And what Sager can't hear himself, they'll hear for him. And it was from them that he heard a story about a neutral Portuguese sailor who had gone to visit with family in the Nazi-occupied Netherlands. His family were working for the Philips Company, which had been taken over by the Nazis to produce something for their war effort. The sailor told his new friends that it was vacuum tubes, the kind you found in radio sets. Commander Sager found that very interesting indeed. He beavered away into the night, piecing together snippets and rumours and tales tall and true, until he had a clear picture of what was going on. Then he picked up the scrambler phone, and on 6th of December 1942, the Philips factory in Eindhoven, which was producing the vacuum tubes that tank and infantry radios relied on to operate, was put out of action in a night air raid. If you enjoy this show, then please support us. Give us five stars on your podcast app of choice and tell your friends about us on social media or, if you're into that kind of thing, in real life. It really does help get the word out and ensure that we can keep making episodes of Scotland. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It is 27th of July, 1903. Henry Northcote is driving the 6.30am Isle of Man special from Ardrossan into St Enoch Station. Everything is going along swimmingly, as hundreds of holidaymakers on the carriages are looking ahead to the long trudge home to normality. The weather's nothing special, but at least it isn't raining. Henry has driven goods trains for almost all of the seven years he's been a driver with the company, but has recently picked up this run from the ports at Ayrshire, back into the city for passengers. He likes it fine. There's a bit more to remember, but it's nothing he can't handle. The arrival can be a little bit tough, since you're coming in at a 90 degree angle, but provided you keep to the 10 mile an hour speed limit, everything's fine. Except, Henry is running at 12 miles an hour as he arrives in the station that morning. And that would be fine if he was heading to one of the six old platforms at the station, which extend all the way up to the far end of the striking glass canopies. But he's not. He's heading to platform 8, 
which is over 100 feet shorter than the smallest of the old platforms. By the time he realises what he's done, it's too late. The second carriage from the front was completely wrecked. Thirteen passengers were killed on the spot. Three subsequently died of injuries received. Seventeen were seriously hurt and taken to hospital, while 47 others were injured but were able to proceed to their homes. The total casualties were 16 killed and 64 injured. The report goes on. He knew that he had been signalled into platform number eight but he says that, not being well acquainted with the station since its enlargement, he forgot that number eight is a short platform and does not extend as far as the western end of the station. This is probably the correct explanation of his action, but it can hardly be regarded as an excuse. There's no hard evidence of this, but it's safe to say that Henry Northcote never drove a train again. There's a kind of irony in the fact that HMS Sparship played such a role protecting Glasgow and St Enoch Station from air raids, and that the fatal train crash of 1903 didn't dampen Glaswegians' desire to use the railways. By the 1970s, it was giving an ambitious and trigger-happy city council a bit of a headache. So many cities had been allowed to rebuild themselves as modern metropolises after the war. It would be too much to say that the council had wished that their city had been demolished by bombing, but it would have saved them a lot of time and money doing it themselves. It is 1965, and Dr Beeching has just closed the book on the second of his infamous reports. The report is infamous if you're vaguely into trains. Otherwise, it's fair to say that the report isn't that infamous. Basically, in order to make the nationalised British Rail more efficient, he had recommended that 2,363 stations and more than 5,000 miles of railway lines should be closed, amounting to 55% of stations and 30% of all of the track in the UK. Basically, if there's a disused railway track near you, one of those places that people go to walk dogs or commit petty crimes or both, this guy closed it. Beeching was absolutely relentless, and more than 300 stations in Scotland alone were closed, cutting off communities from accessible rail and condemning the country to a reliance on cars, which we still suffer from today. It's not like the Tory cabinet of the time had financial ties to the companies building the nation's new motorways. Oh wait, yes it was. Nothing ever changes. One day we'll look at the Beeching Report and the damage it did to a connected nation in detail. One day. But for now, St Enoch was on the chopping block. It closed in 1966 and its 25,000-odd passengers per day were diverted through Glasgow Central instead. But that's not the end of the station and its grand hotel. It stood until the 1970s with its platforms acting as a useful car park for all those vehicles that Beeching stuck city centres around the country with. And when the council were beginning to feel that uncontrollable itch, they pulled the trigger and tore it down in 1977. The site was filled by the St Enoch Centre, 
a behemoth shopping centre that has all the architectural hallmarks of the futuristic zone from the Crystal Maze, but without any of the fun. It remains a bastion of Glasgow's obsession with demolishing its built heritage to accommodate glassy nods to the nearest now. But you can still visit the St Enoch Hotel and Railway Station. Kind of. In fact, if you've ever been to a gig in Glasgow, you probably have. In 1982, land reclamation work started at the old Queen's Dock. Glasgow's desire to become a destination for the conference set had led to the approval of plans for the Scottish Exhibition and Conference Centre, later joined by the Armadillo and the Hydro, all of which stand on land reclaimed with rubble from the St Enoch railway station and hotel. And if you want an even more tangible reminder of the station, you can head to Cumbernauld, where the Antonine Centre houses the clock which used to hang high above the station and watched all of these stories unfold. Or you could just watch Gregory's Girl, it's, it's in Gregory's Girl too. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. Additional voices in this episode were by David Allen and Ashley Wilson. The section from Jimmy McEachran was contributed to the BBC's World War II People's War Project and can be found at bbc.co.uk forward slash history forward slash WW2 People's War. The music for every episode of Scotland is by our very own architectural masterwork, Mitch Bain. You can check out more of his work at mitchbain.bequiet.media. You can find out more about the show and read transcripts on our website, scotlandpodcast.net, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram too. Find us by searching Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Thanks for listening. Look after each other. We'll see you next time.